Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Food and water security, cracking the code, finding new ways to power our nation and drive the manufacturing economy. Today, I'm joined by Gus Nathan, professor and world expert in the delivery of low-cost clean energy technologies, and Yen Zhao, Australian Research Council Future Fellow, exploring how we optimise energy storage, conversion and transfer. Welcome both. Hello, Andy. So Australia is mineral rich and our weather patterns lend themselves to renewable energy production, solar, wind and waves. And yet our mineral extraction and exports contribute significantly to our carbon emissions. So how do we decarbonise heavy industry and find better renewable solutions? So Yen, can we start with you? What, uh, what got you into renewable energies? Well, renewable energy is actually my childhood dream <laughs> because I was reading those books, magazines, and I got worried that um, the greenhouse effect is becoming uh, worse and worse. So I kept thinking that if that gets worse and worse, uh, the temperature increase and increase, the animals, they will die, they will eat, extinct, and probably the environment is not no longer good for us as humans to live on the planet. So it's really a personal, it's really a personal mission for you uh, then to uh, apply your knowledge and understanding to really help solve uh, some of these major challenges. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so here, here, in, here in Australia, how do we stack up uh, in the world in terms of uh, renewable energies? Are we, are we really good? Could we do better? Uh, are, we, are we not investing enough or not developing these enough? I think we're doing really good. We're one of the uh, few countries that is leading the research area of uh, renewable energy. Uh, but definitely, we can do better. For example, in South Australia, we now have more than half of the electricity generated from those uh, renewable sources like solar energy and wind energy. Uh, but that figure can be higher as the state government promised in the following 10 or 20 years that will achieve like 100% of electricity generation all from renewable energies. And so do you think we're going to get there? Are we going to get to 100% renewable energy generation? I do believe in that. Yeah. And, and what, are some, what are some of the problems with, with renewables? Why, you know, why haven't we reached 100% uh, today, what, what are some of the problems with, with rolling out renewable energies? Uh, I think the main problem is we need to build the momentum gradually. We need to develop all the related areas. They are all interconnected. I'm not sure if you heard this story. So uh, in some part of the world, uh, people have constructed a very big factories of solar panels, but the productivity is so high they face a problem of selling those solar panels into households. So it's like of a, of a bucket, one plank is too long, but all the other planks, they are not long enough to support that type of economy. So I think in South Australia, if we want to improve uh, the number to 100%, it needs effort from every aspect of the economy that is related to renewable energy. Yeah. And, and what about problems with, uh, 
you know, renewable energy is only producing energy at certain times. So when the sun shines, when the wind's blowing, when the tide's high. How do we manage uh, that uh, quite variable uh, energy production? You are asking a critical question <laughs> in renewable energy now, because they are, um, uh, they are not stable. Uh, when we have the sunlight, we have the solar energy. When we have a strong wind, uh, we have the wind energy. Uh, then the storage is a big problem that we need to address in this area. Currently, battery technology is widely used to store the uh, electricity, the renewable electricity generated. For example, in South Australia, we have the virtual power plant. The state government have installed the Tesla big battery pack uh, to the north of Adelaide. Uh, they are all very good uh, uh, efforts of uh, tackling this problem. Uh, but looking like uh, 50 years uh, after this, uh, we need to think about better solutions to store all those energy. Currently, we have 50% of electricity generated from the renewable source. And then in the future, what happens if 100% of the electricity is all from the renewable energy? Do we build another and another of the, the big battery pack uh, with a lifespan of six to seven years? What are we going to deal with them? So it's a very good solution for now, but for the long term, we probably need to look at alternative solutions. And one of the solutions that I'm currently looking into is to convert all those renewable electricities to transportable fuels. So, okay, so, uh, so what are transportable fuels? Good question. <laughs> Hydrogen is one of the transport. I feel like I'm being fields. lectured here. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, no, 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 it's good. I'm learning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So hydrogen, which Gus will talk a, a lot later yeah. on, yeah. I use it as an example because it is currently the most exposed concept. For example, the Japan uh, and the US, there are lots of uh, government are talking about hydrogen economy. Yeah. So it's a, a concept that was originated quite long ago, but uh, people started to realize it until the recent few years. So for hydrogen, uh, how do we generate hydrogen from a renewable source? First, we need to have water. So for one water molecule, we have two hydrogen atoms, we have one uh, oxygen atom, and with the renewable electricity generated from sun, from wind, we put that energy into the water molecule and bam, it splits into hydrogen molecule and oxygen molecule. So completely clean, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for two of the water molecules, it can convert to uh, two hydrogen and one oxygen. So that's how the chemistry works. So in this way, uh, we are taking water or hydrogen as the energy carrier. It carries the energy that is generated from sunlight, generated from uh, wind energy. This is one example. Now we take that example to another one. What if we use other energy carriers? For example, the carbon dioxide. Mm. We breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide, if it's uh, like too much of it, it's, it, it's not beneficial. Uh, it's causing the greenhouse effect. But actually we can convert carbon dioxide to liquid fuels. For example, ethane 
methane. They, uh, from chemistry, uh, they, the, they are the combination of uh, carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. So we have carbon dioxide, which provides carbon, oxygen. And then we can have water, which provides hydrogen and oxygen. And using the uh, renewable electricity, we put them together, bam. <laughs> we have the liquid fuel. Yeah. which can use the current transportation infrastructure to uh, move it from here to there to different locations. So by using that way, we are storing the energy in a form with much higher energy density. So speaking of energy density is, for example, we have this much of a space. Uh, think of, uh, of a TV box. If we are using battery to occupy that type of space, then uh, we can get, uh, for example, this amount of the electricity uh, energy out of it. But we are using that space to store uh, the liquid uh, fuels, then we can store much more energy in that confined space. Yeah. So uh, I, I hadn't really understood that before. Thank you for such a clear explanation. Um, you're using then renewable energies to convert into a, a transportable energy form. So are you telling me that electric cars are not going to be here forever? What we're going to see is other fuels that are uh, created by renewable energies will, will be just as popular uh, as electric cars because of this, this dynamic in terms of the battery and the, uh, the power fuel, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think electric cars, they are going to stay uh, for quite a while because the technology is mature, uh, people have already take the concept of uh, electric car. So th uh, that's going to stay, in my opinion. Uh, so for the long run, probably uh, we will have the hydrogen cars or just the, the normal cars that we are driving today. The only difference is that uh, the fuel that we put into our car is not the gasoline from underground, Hmm. But instead, it will be the renewable fuel generated uh, by those um, energy after those energy conversion process. Great. So uh, thanks, thanks, Yen. And so, Gus, if we could just uh, go into hydrogen uh, in a little bit more detail, you and your team do quite a bit of work uh, on hydrogen, and uh, so hydrogen can be. Um, used as a, as a kind of energy source converted from uh, renewable, renewable energies uh, as a transportable fuel. But hydrogen has other benefits for heavy industry. Absolutely. The, um, the energy is, is uh, probably one of the relatively... Um, it, I mean, to be able to supply energy, it has to be very low cost. But there are other higher value applications for hydrogen. It's already used uh, widely in industry, for example, in the in the plastics industry and in the in the petrochemical industry. It's used already as a um, to upgrade fuels and plastics, etc. But in the in the long, I guess one of the big opportunities is in the iron and steel sector, where currently we make all of our um, iron and steel using coke, which comes from coal. Um, but, but metallurgical coke is relatively expensive. Hmm. It's about double the cost of natural gas on an e energy basis. And uh, we think that it's not going to be too long 
before green hydrogen reaches cost competitiveness with that sector. So the world is already beginning to gear up to replace the, um, the current route of making iron and steel with metallurgical coke to replace it with hydrogen. You might have heard the recent announcement by Liberty in Wyala, and this is the route that they're moving towards. It'll take some years before it'll be all the way to hydrogen, hmm. but this is the trajectory that the world's taking, where we see it'll be one of the probably early, relatively early high value applications, which will be very large requirement for hydrogen. And so Liberty, their steel producer up at uh, Wyala? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, they, they made the announcement, uh, I guess, well, in increasing detail, but recently they've announced that they're planning to, um, to convert their, their current um, steel works stepwise into the route that will start with natural gas and then move into hydrogen yep. to make the steel with, with this route. And in, in that, that's kind of the timeline where um, we're anticipating that the cost of renewable hydrogen will start to break even somewhere around kind of 2025 to 2030 is when hydrogen will become uh, cost competitive with coke. Yeah. So you won't need a subsidy potentially. Yeah. So we're, we're aiming to then reduce the carbon emissions uh, for the conversion of iron ore uh, into, into other products. But uh, I mean, is there the potential to com completely decarbonize this heavily industry? Not really, you're still gonna have some carbon emissions from this. Well, this is a really good question and it's actually a really big global challenge. I mean, for example, iron and steel is roughly 8% of global CO2 emissions. Cement and lime are about 7% uh, together. So collectively, this sector with the other metals has been dubbed one of the difficult to abate sectors, which the, similarly, the, the bit that Jan has talked about with regard to liquid fuels, these are the bits that are more difficult because you know, as a society, we can see the pathway to decarbonising electricity. You know, if we drive around and we can see the, the wind farms and the PV panels and we say, yeah, that's happening. But do iron and steel, is, is the technology is not yet commercial to do it, but it's, it's coming, it's getting close. And um, when it does, then this is a really a critical need for hydrogen as opposed to electricity. There isn't a commercial route to make iron and steel from electricity directly but there is from hydrogen, which could come from electricity or could come from other vectors. And that route is one where really hydrogen is critical. And when it gets to that scale, then the cost will come down and then it'll start to be able to come into um, other areas. And so why, why is hydrogen so, so critical in that new pathway? Great question. So the, uh, to make iron and steel, you need two things. You need heat yeah. and you need a chemical because you're taking iron ore as an iron oxide so you need to strip away the oxygen, react the oxygen, or called reducing it. And to do that, you take the oxygen in the iron oxide, react that with the hydrogen, so that strips the oxygen from the iron oxide to make, to make uh, again, water. And the hydrogen is used to make the water to take the oxygen from the iron ore, and then you're left with the iron. So you need the, the hydrogen as a chemical to be the reductant. Currently, that's done with, with the carbon in the, in the coke. Um, and so that, that pathway is, it's, it's proven that, that it can be done, but to do it economically is the challenge. And so the, to get the technology gradually evolving, the example where Jan gave is great about the different planks in the whole economy. They need to evolve together to get the cost down. Um, but then as it, as it does, we're projecting somewhere between 2025 20, and 2030 is when it'll start to break even. And this is when 
but large production of hydrogen is going to be needed for that process. So that's why we're pursuing hydrogen, because the double benefits are in these areas. But hydrogen's also been a fuel that's been with us for 100 years, hasn't it? Think back early 1900s, the Zeppelins and uh, the large airships, I mean, they were floated by hydrogen. How did they make such large quantities of hydrogen back then? And are you doing it any better today? <laughs> that's a great question. In fact, Andy, um, for everyone else, we had a chat about this, and I, I didn't actually know exactly how they made it. I had an idea, which I thought was from coal, and I looked up in the, did, had to do a bit of reading around, and in fact, some people said they did, but the way they made it was by mixing sulfuric acid with iron filings. Right, wow. And it's a similar approach. The Hardcore chemistry, reacts. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Makes hydrogen, and that's how they made it in relatively large quantities from available chemicals in those days. Um, and of course, you can do it from lots of ways. Hydrogen has been a part of the economy for many years, but currently hydrogen is a, is a very relatively inexpensive fuel. So it's only used for, for um, you know, quite expensive applications and uh, it's made currently from predominantly from natural gas or from coal and CO2 is released when you do that. So the commercial route of making hydrogen you still release CO2 from the burning of fossil fuels. Yeah. And so the, the path is to then do that via a different route, yeah. as Jan has explained. Yeah, yeah. So we're still going to have batteries. Batteries are still going to be an intermediate technology on the route to the completely renewable uh, technology. Well, batteries will still be a part of the, part of the mix for a long time, but they'll have a complementary role. Yeah. It's going to be too expensive, and also there won't be enough of the of the metals available probably to try and do all of our energy storage with batteries, but they do play a critical role in the very rapid response. They've got a great, a great component, but they won't be the only thing. Hydrogen and other components are, are really complementary and they'll be for the larger storage and also where you need the, 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 the chemical for the things like reduction. Hmm. So is the, uh, is the Tesla battery still the largest in the world? Uh, well, it has been the largest till recently, and I think it still may be. I'm not sure about the latest, but it certainly um, has played a critical role in the in the state's um, energy mix yeah. and has saved the grid. But it's also worth noting that it's only, even though it's big, it only stores about, for example, 3% of the state's peak power for one hour, yeah. right? So you need to have a, a lot of them if you're going to try and store enough energy to keep us going for a, for a week of not much resource. So it's a, it's a critical part of the mix, but of an expensive part, and you won't be realistic to do the whole of our mix, of our solution in that way, but a critical part of the mix for going forwards. And batteries will certainly have a growing role. And there's also all the technologies, including batteries, are evolving and getting better with time. Yeah. So, yeah, I know, I know you do a bit of work on battery technology uh, as well. So what are some of the new technologies around with, with batteries? Uh, so currently, the most commercialized battery technology is the lithium-ion battery, uh, such as the Tesla battery pack. Uh, and the new uh, technology in our center that is doing is a new technology called aqueous battery. So, for so water battery, literally. Yep. Yes, yep. water-based battery. Yep. So the, the best thing of this technology is that the electrolyte is water-based, so uh, it's very safe. 
for the lithium-ion battery, the electrolyte is organic-based, so it's flammable, and the lithium is flammable, so that's a, a factor that we need to consider. Uh, but then for those aqueous battery, because it's avoiding the use of organic liquids as an electrolyte, so it's very safe from that uh, point of view. And in the past, biggest problem with the aqueous battery is the void voltage that it can output is a bit narrow comparing to lithium. But then uh, with the new uh, chemistry being getting involved, we can improve the, the voltage window to a bigger one. Yeah. So uh, just uh, for a moment, let's, let's look around uh, the, the horizons for, for research and investigation. And uh, for new students that might be coming in to, to the university, what potentially, what topic areas might they be working on in two or three years' time that would really represent the cutting edge uh, of, of this field? I mean, uh, I guess there are, there are a lot of novel areas that are going on at the same time. We're, we're certainly um, looking at how we can apply these new technologies to lower the cost in decarbonising the heavy industry sector. And, uh, and Jan is, I guess, looking at some of the novel material approaches in there. We'd like to talk about a few of those. Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, for, for new students want to do PhD study uh, in the university, we do have many topics for them to choose. So on top of the two energy careers that I was talking about, which there's lots of research that a student can do to, to improve the efficiency, we're also looking at using nitrogen as an energy carrier. So we can use the uh, renewable electricity to combine nitrogen with the hydrogen that we just produced, combine them together into a chemical called ammonia. So ammonia is very safe for transportation. Mm. So uh, currently the bottleneck in this area is the low conversion efficiency. So for example, if we have like this amount uh, of electricity putting into cracking nitrogen and producing ammonia, probably only this portion can be converted. So that's the biggest challenge. Uh, and then we are investigating better catalyst materials that can do a better conversion efficiency between those uh, different energy forms. Uh, so yeah, design different catalyst materials for different energy carriers to do the uh, conversion. Uh, that, that are many topics that uh, students can, can, uh, can choose. So plenty to choose from. Uh, yes. There. I think um, I, I'm also going to ask uh, maybe a difficult question uh, now. But uh, so give me a prediction, a prediction on when energy production, transport and heavy industry would be carbon neutral and fully uh, support uh, renewable energies. How, how far in the future is that green future from us? Well, uh, generally the targets that uh, most industry are working towards is 2050. Um, we just held a forum and... Uh, some you get there a bit quicker? Come on, Gus. Well, some of the international, <laughs> some of the international industry is saying that it'll take to maybe 2100 to fully decarbonise iron and steel making. So there are a range of different perspectives around, but I guess the challenge with, with the, um, the heavy industry sector is it is expected to be one of the slowest to decarbonise. Partly that is because um, 
the, sec the, the, the industry is, all the components are very large. The time scale of developing and upscaling the technology alone is typically, well, at least 10 years to get it to pilot scale, then to yeah. demonstrate it to commercial scale. So is there's a lot of inertia years. in that system, isn't there? A lot yeah. of inertia. And yeah. also the industry is all, uh, they're, they're trade exposed. They run with high volumes and low margins and they can't afford to go bankrupt. Yeah. So every, everyone has to move at a similar pace. So it's really, it's critical that, um, that we have international drivers and stability. The, the drivers are coming from new international markets. And it's interesting that, for example, different estimates are the cost of making, say, cement to be carbon neutral would pretty much double the cost of cement at the make, moment. At the moment, yep. with the current known technologies. Of course, yep. this will come down. Yeah. To currently, to do it with steel would maybe add 20% to the cost. However, even with those numbers, that would only add between 1% and 3% to the cost of the final product, such as the cement might double its cost, but the building you're going to make might only go up by 1% or 2%. The car, the steel might go up by 20 30%, but the cost of the car might only go up by 1%. So this means the end user is usually prepared to pay that 1% or else it would come by regulation which says we have to have green building standards, everybody goes up 1%. Just like now you have to have green insulation in your building, in your, in your house, because they know it's cheaper for the long run. So we think those costs, even though even with today's technology, they're affordable. It's just a matter of having the systems in place, the market pull. So for example, if an automotive company says, we're going to be offering, or it's already happened, for example, companies like Apple have said, we're going to be making all our computers carbon neutral by 20, 20, 20 30 different products, depending which ones they are. So this means that there's now a market for those products, and this will be what will flow through to the manufacturer. But we have to be transforming our industries now to be, because it's going to take 10 odd years yeah. before we can build them. And before it can roll out across the whole industry, we'll probably take the 10 to 2025. So you've got the development of the technologies, which are going to come before the adoption of the technologies, where you're going to and require a carrot and a stick approach uh, yeah. to, to make sure we get there. That's right. And you can't just look at this industry in isolation and blame the industry because they have to operate in the commercial market they're in or they go out of business. So you have to have a, the supply chain, um, which can come from the end, end user pool, can come from governments. But Europe is already introducing carbon border taxes, yeah. which will mean that anyone who wants to sell there has to decarbonise. So it just needs part of the market to trickle and then the investment comes to get it demonstrated and then costs start to come down. So this is why we see a cascading effect as they come down, but it will take time to roll out through society. So this carbon economy is coming and it's being driven by consumer preference, really. So Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's not being not a formal system uh, that we, we tried to put in place before, but through preference. In Australia there isn't, but I mean, there is a formal system introduced in Europe yep. with the carbon border tax, for example. It's, that's scheduled to come in 2021. Yep. So it is, start, in some ends is coming from that end, yep. but others is coming from the market pool. This is what's driving people like Apple to be carbon neutral. They're making these announcements purely on a market base because there are enough customers prepared to pay. And at the end product level, it's only going to be a few percent. So mm -hmm. it just needs a few people prepared to pay that. That drives the market then the costs come down and soon it comes rolled out. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Gus and uh, Jan, thanks so much for a really uh, great discussion today. And thanks for being on the Discovery Board.
Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss food and water security. 